Welcome to the Ripe Labs podcast. I'm Alan Davies, the Ripe Labs editor, and this time we're diving into a conversation about the geopolitics of internet routing. The internet has this issue of not being really territorialized. What we want to do is explore the relationship between internet infrastructures, including logical infrastructures, routing, data paths, data routes, and territories. Governments are trying to push an agenda of sovereignty over the internet. And on the other end, you have network operators, which are mostly against this kind of model. And then you have internet giants, which are building a parallel internet, which is very different as well. So knowing how actors can shape the network, to what extent they can do so, this seems uh, extremely interesting for the future of the internet. The idea that the internet both shapes and is shaped by geopolitical factors in different ways across different countries and regions probably strikes most of us as uncontroversial. But getting to a deeper understanding of exactly how the geopolitical and technical realms interact with each other and what effect that interaction has on people, both as internet users and beyond, comes with all kinds of challenges and calls on knowledge and expertise from a variety of disciplines. The Geode Center is a multidisciplinary research and training center dedicated to the study of the strategic and geopolitical impact of the digital revolution. Over the years on Ripe Labs, we've heard quite a lot about the work being done by the Geo team. And at Ripe 86, I got a chance to catch up with Louis Petano, postdoctoral researcher in the geopolitics of internet infrastructures and digital data routing at Geode. We talked about the methods Louis and his colleagues have been using, the fieldwork they've been doing to get a better view of the situation in particular regions, and how internet measurement data, including data from Ripe Atlas and Ripe Risk, has aided their work. To get the conversation going, I started things off by trying to get a better sense of just how Louis got into this topic in the first place. About 10 years ago, I started my first degree in geopolitics in Paris. And I started working on Ukraine because it was the beginning of the Euromaidan in 2013. Mm-hmm. So I ended uh, my uh, master's. And one year and a half later, I applied for a PhD in geopolitics about geopolitics of the Black Sea. I wanted to explore what was the um, um, reshaping of equilibria of powers, what was Turkey doing, what was Russia doing, etc. So I started doing that and I wanted to add something related to the digital in here. Mm-hmm. And I started to explore how social media could be used to analyze some things in there. Basically, available data was mostly on Twitter and not a lot of people use Twitter. So I wanted to make something else and I met someone who has been working on BGP for a number of years now. And he was working a bit with my soon-to-be second supervisor of PhD. And so he introduced me to BGP, to routing, to infrastructures of the internet. And I spent a lot of time with him and then with Lokman Salamachan, who happens to be his son, also a mathematician now in Colombia doing his PhD on issues related to routing as well. And so we spent a lot of time working together and I started understanding that in Ukraine there were a lot of things happening between 2015 and 2017-18. And so I followed up on that and I actually made my PhD about geopolitics of routing yeah. and BGP in Ukraine, mostly in the eastern and southern parts of it. And so I ended up working all the way on that now and now I work on a variety of issues uh, pertaining to BGP routing, infrastructures, and geopolitics. So what's the basic idea here? What's, what, what is it that you're researching at the moment? I have to define first real quick geopolitics. Mm-hmm. So geopolitics is a study of rivalries of power on a given territory. So it uses a number of tools and methodologies, but mostly the territory is at the core of it. The internet has its, this issue of not being really territorialized. So what 
we want to do is exploring the relationship between internet infrastructures, including logical infrastructures, routing, data paths, data routes, and territories. And what is the relationship between those two? So this relationship is dialectical. There is an influence of geopolitics on the shape of the network and of how the network is architectured by the people making it. And on the other way around, the network shapes power rivalries, power equilibria as well. Basic example, Kyrgyzstan is very dependent on Russia and Kazakhstan. And so in that case, network shapes the leverage that Russia or Kazakhstan have on Kyrgyzstan. And for that matter, Kazakhstan in few years ago uh, tried to make Kyrgyzstan pay much more money than they do to access the internet. So this gives Kazakhstan and Russia a leverage over Kyrgyzstan. So that shapes the geopolitics of it. And on the other way around, geopolitics also shapes the network because people, operators, make connectivity choices depending also on security issues and political issues, on economic issues that are also depending on political issues sometimes. And so we're exploring this relationship, trying to, well, differentiate the egg from the chicken, which is not really possible, but that's what we are trying to explore. So looking at some of the work that you've done on RibeLabs and in other places, um, a big part of it seems to be kind of visually representing the internet in a way that brings out these geopolitically relevant relationships, right? The thing is, we observe the internet as a topological space. That is the first way of looking at it, because you can look at physical infrastructures, but that gives you a very limited view of what's really happening. And the second method of viewing it is uh, through graphs of connectivity. This is, to the eye of the geographer, uh, formally deterritorialized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot see the geography of it except with maybe countries of registration, which is also a very uh, uh, limited information. You can try and infer some geopolitical features of the network in and of itself. For instance, if you look at the networks of, Taj- of Turkmenistan, of Tajikistan, you can observe ways that the governments have decreased the complexity of the networks reduce the number of gateways and basically are being able now to much better control their network. That's one way of looking at it. But what we really want to do, especially when you look outside of the just the state scale, because the state scale is the easiest scale to look at it. But if you get two countries, three countries or more, you have to inject some geographical information in those topological visions. Or if you want to look at a much fine-grained scale, for instance, inside a country, which mm. is what I've done in Ukraine, how can you identify that these networks are from Kiev or Lviv or Odessa or the east of Ukraine? For that, you have to look at the whole other types of data. Some of them are easily accessible, some of them are more difficult to get or to confirm. Our whole work for a number of years now has been to take the topology and to inject geolocation, geography in it, to be able to extract some geographical sense to something that is just topology. Even in the articles on labs, it's quite a range of countries and regions that you've been looking at, and there's loads of different kinds of relationships that you pick up on um, between them. So I, I, would, I wanted to ask, what are some of the really interesting things over the years that you've seen? First thing that I've studied, and mm-hmm. that still is to me one of the most interesting things I've seen, is Ukraine and the way Crimea and Donbass have been disconnected or have disconnected themselves from uh, Ukrainian networks to connect more or less only through uh, Russia to uh, access uh, the rest of the internet. And first of all, it's interesting because I've made many mistakes uh, researching (laughs) it. It was thought that Russia having this idea of sovereign internet, having this idea of being able to more and more control their network, were using that 
knowledge and that interest to manipulate uh, networks in foreign countries in order to assert some kind of power. It is true to some extent, but also it's much more complicated than that. Local networks also choose their own connections depending on a variety of priorities. And mostly local networks in Donbass and Crimea also chose to connect to Russia and to sometimes disconnect from Ukraine. And also Ukrainian government issued sanctions against uh, Ukrainian operators working with Crimean or Donbass operators. So it's a complex landscape of different independent stakeholders that whose actions create dependencies for territories that are claimed by Ukraine regarding international law, but that are disputed by uh, Russia in that case. So this is one of the most interesting things we've seen. And then we, we've started doing some fieldwork more and more to understand what's happening really basically in the heads of network operators. And it's a very complicated task to do. Because we have to deal with that, but we also have to deal with uh, local laws on routing on four network operators. The laws change in each and every country. But we have been researching Kyrgyzstan, and mostly we have been able to identify why Kyrgyzstan is not connected to their neighbors, why they accept to in a way, uh, their dependencies to uh, Kazakhstan and Russia, why they are not specifically developing other ways of connection uh, with countries in Central Asia, but also China, whilst China has plans to expand uh, on that direction. And we have a lot of PhD students that are working on a variety of countries or regions, including Pakistan, Cuba, Canada, Africa, Georgia, soon, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we are expanding one methodology that was developed first on Ukraine, mm -hmm. and we are trying to look at various regions or countries trying to see if the methodology used for one country can be applied to a whole region and it's not that easy actually. So we've also written an article about the Middle East and the Gulf trying to see if the Abraham Accords had an influence on routing in the region. Not that much really, but we also discovered how a Bahraini AES was gaining a lot of traction in the region as a node of interconnectivity. Basically we have a lot to cover uh, still, so hopefully uh, we can because we now have a five years uh, plan of working on that with funding. That's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we're expanding and we're trying to refine the methodology and to expand the geographically and also in terms of transdisciplinarity. Okay, so uh, just out of interest, how much work has already been done in this area? Is this a fairly novel research project or is it well, already... Well, there are two different ways of answering the question. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, first one is since the internet rose, really, and, and became uh, ubiquitous as it is now, a lot of different domains have looked into the geography of the network mm -hmm. and have tried to unveil it in very different ways because there are so many ways to do so. Most of them are computer scientists because you need to leverage a lot of data. You need to be able to manage it, to analyze it, and it's something that in social sciences has not been done. It has been looked at in the terms of in terms of geopolitics a bit through the lens of economy, for instance. Mm -hmm. But really this way of looking at it geographically or to try and by default putting geography into the network is not that common, at least. There have been atlases of the internet, so that exists, but it's a thing that also some, there are periods of time where researchers are more keen on looking at it, and in a given amount of time, they forget it. The okay. thing goes unnoticed for a few years, and then people go back to it. People are looking at it more and more because routing and the geography of where data goes becomes a real strategic importance and yeah. strategic priority for a lot of countries. So that's why in 2015, uh, Dutch Telecom suggested that it could be possible to make German uh, internal routing. And the Snowden period of 2013-14 is approximately the 
period where uh, Geode started. Well, it was not called Geode, but Geode mm -hmm. started to work on that as well. Right, so okay. this does not stem from nowhere. So when you see a kind of like... Like you were just talking about, when you get a more centralized network, perhaps where you know lots lots of networks seem to depend on one hub. How useful is that to you in all this? How much do you get from that, and how much is there still to do after you've seen that to properly understand it? First of all, we're geographers, so we're also cartographers. So we have always used maps because it has heuristic value. Uh, looking at it, gathering data, and setting them in one way or another helps you understand better what you're working on and mm -hmm. what's happening. Why people are doing what they do. And they also have a didactic value because it's much easier to make someone understand the situation if you just make them look at it yeah. instead of reading 30-something pages. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been possible to make a lot of discoveries or findings that we have made without just laying out the networks and looking uh, node after node, trying to see who is the owner of yeah, yeah, yeah. this AS, this AS, uh, what's its relationship with the government with any kind of uh, other people. And by connecting the dots, that helps us understand very complex things. Because again, computer scientists or network engineers, they don't visualize networks necessarily, mm -hmm. but they have a lot of data on the network and they can read complexity values, for instance, or topological properties of the network, which for us is sometimes not understandable. So we need to just laying out plain and simple. So we know it has a lot of limitations. We don't see everything. We use sometimes metrics that are not fully relevant, but it's a work in progress and and it's an incremental work. Okay, that's I, I like that. I, I, I saw today in the presentation as well that you've you're actually investing quite a lot of time into improving this all the time, and and you showed a visualization towards the end of the talk where it looks quite different from the visualizations that you shared on labs, for example. Mm. Is that something completely new, or so we've been talking about the control plane mostly mm -hmm. uh, right now? But in the data plane, we are also trying to find new ways to well display trace about data yeah, and, okay. and ping data. So I, I, it's not in there, but we also make isochron maps of latencies mm -hmm. uh, to also understand uh, other, in other ways the network. And this is a new tool uh, called Amethyst, which is developed uh, by our data scientist. We did not have a data scientist before. Right, okay. And now he helps us going a lot faster than before to be able to show that kind of things. And other tools we had for that before were not fit for our own use or what we are looking mm -hmm. at because not a lot of people are looking at the geography of trace routes mm -hmm. uh, or not as we want to do it, uh, not to show geopolitical underpinnings of connectivity or things like that, which are quite specific. Uh, so we are developing this tool. And at the end of the day, it should help. Well, it will because it's already doing so, but it, it will help us visualize as we want uh, specifically and in very different ways, numerous ways. That's, mm -hmm. that's also the idea is to be able to tweak a bit all those measurements because mm -hmm. with a look at it at the AS level, at the control level, at the RDNS level, you will see different things. And that's Going into that complexity helps us really unveiling some dynamics that would not be been uh, visible uh, in other ways. So taking right back this as a case, how much of a challenge was it for you guys to actually approach that and start getting into the data and really making use of it? We worked with, uh, especially my colleague uh, Kevin, worked with Nmap before. So it's another tool for trace routes and which has visualizations that are sometimes 
more easily to read, but uh, which lacks, of course, the whole infrastructure of uh, Ripe Atlas. At first, it was difficult. It took a lot of time to yeah. master yeah, it yeah, yeah. Uh, and to be able to use it because I had to export the data and to put it in um, software for uh, mapping. Now we are trying to be able to gather it more quickly. So that's why we made a channel between Amethyst and uh, the RIPE uh, uh, Atlas software. But we have one thing that is a limitation still. We cannot use a big uh, data sets. My colleague Logman has worked on something used to do so, which would allow, for instance, to gather all the tracers that go through one country, uh, and that has been done for a given period, and which could be used for that. But we need the workforce. So we will be hiring in a few uh, a month, so that will help us gain in scale. But for now, yes, those, those are the kind of limitations we are facing. And it was really rudimentary a few years ago. Now we are automating stuff a lot, uh, thanks to data scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we did not have them before. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It took so much time. But are there some things that you would like to be able to look at? And at the moment, there's just no way because of the lack of data. Well, the thing that is impossible to get now is traffic data. This would change the whole thing because right. you can have so much granularity in the data you get. So we have data path with trade routes, but that's the most we can get. And that is a call for yeah. <laughs> one listening. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're a, a huge worldwide CDN and you want to share data, don't hesitate to do so because that's what we like. And especially because now the control plane is much more difficult to read because you have the flattening of the internet, because you have much more direct connections, uh, the peering connections that are not easy to, to monitor. Um, so the standard model of hierarchical architecture was easy to read or to some extent easier to read and now it's becoming more and more difficult to understand really the connectivity of less developed countries for instance. Mm -hmm. I would surmise that the situation stays a bit the same but for the western world europe and the us it's much more difficult to read so traffic data is what we would need to have the best view uh, available i think how much how much do those physical connections occupy your work is that an element of it in terms of it is but it's also sometimes difficult to get i mean you have mm. a few databases so the itu obviously has uh, one of the most comprehensive maps i think uh, but it's not exhaustive still what we're doing for that is uh, we use i would say cutting edge but i'm not sure because that's not my domain but mm-hmm. uh, new methodologies to infer position of physical infrastructures uh, so that's also the work of lockman which is called igdb and then we are doing again really rudimentary work about uh, just going uh, network operators websites and looking at their network maps. So that takes time, but that's kind of the only way to do so, ways to do so. But yeah, we're looking at it, but yeah, it's difficult. You don't know which ones are used or not. And we also have uh, people working directly on physical infrastructure. So I have a colleague who's working on the cloud and we have a few researchers that are not in our center, but in France who are working on on submarine cables. So we are integrating it to some extent, Mm -hmm. but it's Difficult to get a clear view uh, with with the physical infrastructures, I think. The fact that you are having to collaborate with people from quite a different number of fields and you need that, like you say, sometimes the the mathematical know-how or the the technical know-how, 
And you talk about like inventing a new language so that you can all talk about these topics. Do you feel now that you have a group of people who are all very switched on to what you're trying to do and, and this is rolling now? When I talk with uh, um, the technical community mm. or geographers, I don't use the same language and it's difficult. For instance, control plane is not an expression really clear for Geographers, it's it's never used. Even I have been using it for a few months now. Only uh, I know it existed, but I did not use it because it was not clear to me. So speaking to both communities can be challenging sometimes. But we are progressing in that area. I mean, mm -hmm. well, we are starting from a very uh, mm -hmm. uh, I would not say from scratch, but almost. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we are we keep developing ways to speaking between each other. And we we remain very open to the fact that we don't know everything yeah. and the other don't as well. So we have to explain each other uh, a lot. But actually, I think this is the core of research as well, yeah, especially transdisciplinarity. So you got the kind of visualizations and the data and you could talk to the Internet people about, you know, their insights. But then you mentioned this briefly. There's also a strong fieldwork element. Has that become more common now? Is that something you're doing more of lately, actually getting out and talking to people and doing the interviews? I wanted to do interviews during my PhD, yeah. and I set up to doing so just before COVID. Of course, I did not. I finished my PhD without any fieldwork relating mm -hmm. to connectivity. I had a lot of interviews that had nothing to do with it, but and I mostly didn't use them, but I didn't have that. And so it took a bit of time, but actually about six months after my, my defense, uh, we went to Kyrgyzstan to start Right, really that. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, we had PhD students who were uh, starting as well uh, at the same time. So it was a, a common effort of, okay, let's do that and let's explore that. But I should say that we are not the first to do so at all. Only in geography and geopolitics, possibly we are now maybe at the forefront. Uh, again, I hope I'm not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> if, if you wake up tonight sweating <laughs> over that comment, I'll just put it out. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, uh, not at the forefront, but we are a big team that mm -hmm. are doing field work and not uh, that many people do so. However, in the field of uh, science and technology studies, mm -hmm. uh, you have sociologists who have been doing so for a long time and not with the same objective as us. I mean, we were, I was working on Crimea a few years ago mm -hmm. and at the very same time, Emil Abel, uh, Romain Fontaine from Japan and we're, we're working with a researcher called Xenia Ernoshina who was exactly doing the same thing as us but with fieldwork. So we are definitely not the first to do so and not the first to have the ID. Only we are not researching the same thing and we have been looking at the geography of it through graphs, through data mm -hmm. of the internet. And actually we are coming back to our old ways in a way. We have been doing fieldwork uh, for as long as geopolitics existed. So we are just doing the same thing now on with data that we did not have before, basically. Yeah, okay. I mean, because like conceptually, I, I assume you could have two countries that end up looking very similar just in terms of how the graphs come out. And then once you actually start talking to people, it could end up being two very different situations, right? Yeah, that's, that's what also science and technology studies have been doing. It's, mm -hmm. Researching the, I'd say the, the, also the dialectical relationship between humans and technology, mm -hmm. to put it really bluntly. So we are doing the same, but with a geographical prism and with, um, best we can, with knowledge of the countries we're visiting. So that's why I've been mostly to Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan because I have a pretty good knowledge of post-Soviet space, mm -hmm. uh, even if it's not a, uh, 
<laughs> original uh, yeah. saying used nowadays, but I was working in Pakistan as well with a colleague who is a specialist of Pakistan. Right, okay. uh, I intend to work in the Balkans who, with a colleague who is a specialist of the Balkans, okay. but not a routing. And so this is also where transdisciplinarity comes. I'm kind of bridging between technical community, geographers with technical knowledge and geographers with no technical knowledge. And we are trying to uh, mix all of those, all of those people to produce good and strategic sometimes knowledge about the internet in one given country, why it is that it, the way it is, yeah. uh, what are the geopolitical consequences of it, etc. Et if you were explaining to someone why this is important, what would you say to that? I'd say first that digital data is uh, so very strategic. Mm. Now uh, it's everywhere, it's used for everything. And so it seems only normal to know where it goes. Yeah. and through what it goes and where it is stored, by whom. And that, that is the first level of answering that question. Then it is also because it has still now to be said that for a number of years, very, a various number of people said the internet is like this ether uh, mm -hmm. above us that has no border, no territory, no nothing. I think even... In itself, in, in a scientific, through a scientific point of view, it's fascinating to try and understand why can it take so many paths possible? Why does it take this one? Why doesn't it take another one which is simpler, which is, um, which could be cheaper, etc.? All those questions are scientifically, geographically speaking, even uh, fascinating. And of course, strategically speaking, I think that yes, you should be able to know where data goes. And finally, I'd say that it's also more important to know that governments are trying to push an agenda of sovereignty over the Internet. And on the other end, you have network operators, which are mostly against this kind of model. And then you have Internet giants, which are building a parallel Internet, which is very different as well. And this, this is also the three directions that we are exploring. And this is only the beginning of it, yeah. I think. So knowing how actors can shape the network to what extent they can do so and what they will face in, re in resistance yeah. as well. This seems, uh, again, extremely interesting only just for the future of the internet yeah. in itself. What are you guys doing next? Like, what's the, what does the next few months look like? Is there any more field work coming up or anything like that? Or I, for myself, with a few colleagues of mine, we are going to wrap up the Central Asia project. Okay with the publication of at least one other RIPE um, Labs article oh, cool. about the uh, Amethyst platform. I'm going to have to also exploit and publish on the Ukraine fieldwork. So that's mostly for me and, uh, and my colleagues, and we are also exploring other countries uh, right now. But the biggest uh, issue, I'd say, or the biggest uh, uh, prospect is we have, uh, well, my former uh, supervisor and uh, boss, uh, Frederick Duzet, uh, was awarded a European Research Council grant for five years to study uh, data routes. So this is an ongoing project, which I hope I will be part of, <laughs> yeah. technically, not mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. But uh, but yeah, so we have a five years project going on and we will hire a new PhD, we will develop new fieldwork, new way of doing so, and also new ways of, uh, of uh, displaying data as well. So this is uh, only the beginning, I'd say. Excellent, great. Okay, well, thank you very much for well, doing thanks. all this. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs>
That's us for this week. I'd like to thank Louis once again for coming and talking to us on the Ripe Labs podcast. And as usual, you can get links to a bunch of resources and extra information in the show notes down below. We'll be taking a short break for the summer, but we'll be back before you know it with a whole new set of episodes. Look forward to seeing you then. <laughs>